We see that in the Old Testament, going to the well was kind of like going to a nightclub. Jacob met his wife, Rachel. Moses met his wife, Zipporah. And Abraham's servant found Rebekah, a wife for Abraham's son, Isaac. Where did these romances get kindled? By the well. Wells might have been one of the few places in those times where unrelated men and women would have been able to gather together and talk freely. But to an early Jewish reader of the gospel, there would have been a seedier undercurrent to this idea of Jesus loitering around the well at noontime. As the Samaritan woman pointed out, Jesus didn't have his own bucket to draw water, which means that he was only going to get a drink if someone was going to share it with him. Well, who was going to show up at noon to draw water? It's the hottest part of the day. In the Middle East, that's when people kept to the shade indoors. We can surmise then that this lone woman who came out in the middle of the day to get her water was an outcast from society. She was excluded from the groups of women who would make a social ritual of going out to the well during the cooler hours in the morning and the early evening. The reason for this was because, as we later learn, she was living with or involved with a man to whom she was not married. She was a public adulterer. Thus, she would have been shunned by polite company. So from the outside, the fact that the Lord was at this place at that time, talking to this woman would look scandalous, and not just because he was a Jew and she was a Samaritan. If one didn't know that Jesus was without sin, you'd be forgiven for thinking that here was a man with an ulterior motive, hanging around the well at midday, hoping to chat up a sexually sexually pliable woman. One of the things that might be a little confusing about the conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman is the fact that Jesus tells her to go find her husband. She replies that, in fact, she has no husband. Jesus agrees with that. And, in fact, he points out that she did have five husbands, but that the man that she is currently involved with is not actually her husband. Now, some might interpret Jesus' words to mean that she was a serial divorcee. Yet Jesus does call all of the five previous men her husbands, in contradistinction to her present partner, who he says is not your husband. This suggests that the first five were legitimate marriages. So rather, the implication is that she must have been widowed five times, which would not have been so uncommon in those days, but then she took up with this sixth man, who she could either not, or either he could not, or she would not marry. Notice, of course, that as the sixth man in her life, but because their relationship was illicit, this calls to mind the sixth commandment, thou shall not commit adultery. The clear implication then is that the barrier to her taking up Jesus on his offer of life-giving water is her participation in this adulterous relationship. But in mentioning that she had five previous seemingly legitimate husbands, Jesus is also making another very important allusion. This was a Samaritan village, and the Samaritans, although enemies of the Jews, were followers of the Pentateuch, the original five books of the Old Covenant, or the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Samaritans were an offshoot of Judaism, who adhered to some parts of the law, but then mixed it with other pagan practices. The Samaritans, in fact, still exist. 
When I went to the Holy Land a few years ago, we went to Nablus, which is an Arabic town in the Palestinian territory. Here you can visit a Greek Orthodox church that has been built over the site where the well was believed to have been. But up the road a little bit is a smaller town on the top of Mount Gerizim. This is the mountain that the woman at the well was referring to as the place where the Samaritans worshiped, which they still do. They even continue some of the temple practices one reads about in the, in the Old Testament, such as animal sacrifice. I don't recommend that you try to watch. So in referencing this woman's five lawful husbands, Jesus seemed to be affirming that she was at least partially in the covenant because the Samaritans followed the first five canonical books of Judaism. But there was a lack of completeness, a lack of integration in at least one other respect. Her married or sexual life was not in order. What's tragic is that this is so common today. I can't count the number of times when someone has said to me, Christianity sounds so great, except why does the church have to be so concerned about what people do in their bedrooms? Well, the church is concerned about all sins. I think it's a stereotype of our secular culture that the church promotes sexual morality as being paramount above all else. But if it seems as though the church in our times is circling back again and again to these issues, it's precisely because they are the issues in our day and age that seem to mess people up so much. Not because sins against the Sixth Commandment are necessarily worse than others, but because they are the ones that people seem to be most eager to justify as not being sinful at all. Most other sins people are at least willing to recognize as such. But aided by our ambient culture, people seem to see sins against the sexual integrity of the person as being their right, as being baked into their very identity. Many simply don't want to hear that divorce or cohabitation or fornication or contraception or homosexual behavior might in any way be subject to God's judgment. The reason is because our sexual feelings and our sexual faculty are in fact very much sacred things. Our behavior in their regards, whether virtuous or sinful, is something that we hold very close to our hearts. Yet God does not give us the Sixth Commandment or any of the teachings about sexual morality simply to be a burden to us. Rather, he gives them to us precisely because of the harm that a person can do to themselves or to others by the misuse of this special aspect of our nature, which is so closely allied with our capacity to love and give ourselves to others. The problem, of course, is that because the sexual, the sexual aspect of the person is so sacred, that when a person sins against this reality, rather than face that existential crisis of sin, they have to convince themselves that what they did really wasn't wrong. So people invent or absorb from the culture ways to rationalize, even to promote immoral sexual behavior. The good news is that, like the Samaritan woman, we can truly be converted away from these sins. We see that in the Gospel reading, after encountering Christ, the woman was so eager to return to the town to proclaim the Messiah that she left her bucket, the symbol of her old, sinful way of life. The secret is that genuine encounter with Christ. Getting rid of sin in our lives, especially sins against chastity, is not so much a matter of turning away as it is a matter of turning towards. Nature abhors a vacuum, and if our life is otherwise empty or lacking in Christ, 
then it's easy to fall into sin, especially sexual sin. One gets rid of sin by a genuine conversion to our Savior. And when we do so, we can look back with joy and see our previous sins, whatever they were, for the puny and unfulfilling and silly little things that they were. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.